Hi, I'm Michael McFall, host of the World Class Podcast and director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Today, I'm sharing a recent episode of the World Affairs Podcast, which is produced by the World Affairs Council of Northern California. Hello, my name is Katerina Yakovlenka. I'm 32 and I was born in Luhansk region, which is now occupied by Russians and pro-Russians groups. So for me personally, this war is eight years long fight for my homeland. When Katerina Yakovlenko sent us this recording on March 3rd, the Russian invasion was just over a week old. She's one of 44 million Ukrainians who now have war stories to tell. My residential area is a small town called Irpin, which is Kiev suburb, and I'm still living here and I do not live. Probably you already know this place from the news. The question of uh, how I feel is one of the most difficult because lately I have experienced a whole range of emotions from anger and hate to pride in my country. This war really become a unifying factor that relied us around. This is not because of the enemy, but because we realize how we love our people and our land. And I'm thrilled to see how our people help each other. For example, in my town completely lost the direct connection with the Kyiv because the Ukrainian army blew all the bridges so that Russian stands could not enter Kyiv. However, food was immediately delivered to the village next to us. Also, people created groups for other people who are in need. Our whole country has become a big family that supports each other. And I'm so sorry that it happened because of war, but what we got is priceless. I'm Ray Suarez, and you're listening to World Affairs. This week, war in Ukraine and the balance of power between the U.S., Russia, and China. We start with Russia. And we're going to take you back in time to 2012. Vladimir Putin has just been elected president for the third time. President Obama's national security advisor, Tom Donilon, flew to Moscow. We wanted to to begin to establish a rapport with the new president. And his main message was, we want stability in U.S.-Russian relations. We have been cooperating on a number of things arms control, cooperation in Afghanistan, Iran, and his main message, you know, including, I think, a letter from President Obama that he delivered, was we want to continue this cooperation. My impression from that meeting is that that was not going to be possible. Michael McFall was U.S. ambassador to Russia at the time, new on the job. He was part of a U.S. delegation invited to a meeting at then-president-elect Putin's country estate. For McFall, it was unforgettable. When Vladimir Putin scolds you, you remember it. Putin was not that interested in win-win outcomes, and he was particularly obsessed, and I, I, I use that word on purpose, obsessed, with what he believed was our meddling, American meddling, in his domestic politics and helping to encourage democratic opposition to him. Because at that time, there had been massive demonstrations against him against a falsified parliamentary election. And in his view, that was us exporting democracy. And at one point in that meeting, uh, he stared right at me. He, he turned his eyes away from Donald and stared right at me 
and and said something to the equivalent of, you know, we know what you're doing and we're going to stop you. It was a very scary moment, right? Just, I want to be honest, to be scolded by Vladimir Putin. I was brand new as the, the new ambassador at the time. And that moment, you know, tragically is a kind of moment that we've been living with. We being the United States, and I would say the democratic world in dealing with Putin ever since. What did you see at that get-together that uh, informs how you're looking at what he's doing today, how he's running Russia, and how he's speaking to the rest of the world? The first thing, just to remember that history, there was a parliamentary election in December 2011. It was stolen, falsified, at kind of normal levels, right? You know, five, six, seven percent. I remember us meeting at the White House thinking, this is no big deal. This is just a normal, uh, normal level of falsification. But this time around, because of smartphones and Twitter and Vukontakte, that falsification was captured and it sparked demonstrations. First 50, then 500, then 5,000, and later hundreds of thousands of people demonstrated to protest that stolen election. And remember, the last time you'd had that many people on the streets of Moscow was 1991, the year the Soviet Union collapsed, the year there was regime change in the Soviet Union, in Russia, in Moscow. So for Putin, he was seeing a replay of that in his mind. He thought that this was a real threat to his leadership, again, in his view, supported by us. By the way, Ray, I want to be clear, in some ways he's right that it was supported by us. We didn't give Alexei Navalny, the leading opposition figure who was leading these protests at the time, money, and that's all just complete and utter nonsense. But we did say supportive things about those protests. So Putin had an argument, and he, he talked about that with Donilon. And every other meeting I was with him until I left the government in 2014, he made it very clear that he thought that we were trying to foment popular movements against him and against his allies. And that's his basic beef, and that's his basic argument with the current government in Ukraine today. So if you fast forward to two years later, again, completely without us doing anything, sparked by Ukrainian people being upset that their leader at the time, President Yanukovych, did not sign an agreement with the European Union to, to begin accession processes. And I emphasize European Union, not NATO. I think that's a common myth that a lot of people have. And I'll tell you honestly, Ray, I, I remember that day I was sitting in my office in Moscow and, you know, no big deal. He didn't sign it this time. Maybe he'll sign it again another time. Diplomats, if you don't succeed today, you just try again the next day. Uh, but Ukrainians, activists had a different idea. And, and one in particular, I know him. His name is Mustafa Naim. Uh, he got on Facebook and he said, this is an outrage that our president isn't listening to the will of the people. And he then helped to spark these massive demonstrations on, on the main square in Kiev that eventually led to tragedy. People were killed, a uh, hundred or so people were killed by the regime. Uh, but in February, that massive demonstration eventually led to Yanukovych, Putin's puppet, fleeing to Russia. And from our perspective, from my perspective personally, that was, you know, a tragic way to have a transition because of the loss of life and the you know, the way that Yanukovych fled, we, just so you know, the Obama administration, were trying to negotiate and mediate an agreement between Yanukovych and the opposition. That was our policy at the time. But then this happened. And again, just as Putin was blaming us for demonstrations against him 
It's exactly the same thing. It was exactly the same paranoia. It's mass protest against a regime that supports him. And that's when he struck back. That's when he annexed Crimea in 2014, supported the separatists. But eight, eight years later, that, that democracy in Ukraine has survived. And that has been frustrating to Mr. Putin over these eight years. And that's why he decided to invade or escalate the invasion he had started in 2014 last week. A note to our listeners, we're recording this conversation on March 2nd. So by the time you hear it, conditions on the ground in Ukraine may have changed, but the historic events that led up to the war remain the same. Michael McFall, you've been involved in one way or another with Russia for a long time. As a student during the last days of the Soviet Union, what were your first encounters with Russia and the Soviet Union? What did the trajectory of the country look like back then? Well, my first encounter was my first trip abroad, Ray. I'd never been abroad before. And most Stanford students, I was an undergraduate at Stanford. You know, they go to London or Paris or Florence, Italy. I went to what then our president called the evil empire, the Soviet Union. I went to Leningrad State University for a summer program in the, in the summer of 1983. Yes, I am that old. And I'll tell you why I went, Ray. I was a, you know, a young student here at Stanford. I was studying Russian and studying international relations. And I, I listened to the way my government and our media talked about the Soviet Union. But I was a skeptical. I was one of those kind of questioning authority. And so I wanted to go see for myself, what is this evil empire? And I had a theory, Ray, simplistic and, and you know, still kind of have it, by the way. But I had this idea that if we could just get to know them better, that that might help reduce misunderstandings, right? We're not going to end the Cold War by, you know, listening to Led Zeppelin together. That's, I did a lot of listening to Led Zeppelin in Leningrad that summer. But, but at least we don't want to have misunderstandings with countries based on bad information and misunderstanding. And so that was what motivated me to go there. And I, I'll tell you honestly, uh, my first impression of that country was that we had more in common than I thought I did before I got on that plane. You know, I met people my age and they did listen to Led Zeppelin. And it's like, you're just like me. Oh, they, they did drink. Uh, they drank vodka. I preferred beer. Their beer was bad. Uh, I learned that was the first time I think I ever drank vodka. But I just, I'm saying these trivial things to remind you that on some basic level, people are not that different. And having lived now abroad, you know, many times in my life, 15 years of my life, maybe in different parts of the planet, I think that's important to remember during these times of crises that, and I would still say that today, I'm in touch every single day with Russians and Ukrainians right now. The people I'm in touch with have way more in common than their differences. I went back in the, in the winter of 1985, and that's when I became a militant anti-communist. By the way, Ray, I was also a militant anti-apartheid activist at the time. And I saw those two struggles related at the time. And that's when I saw more of the evilness of that Soviet system. My Russian was better. I met more dissidents. I met refuseniks, Jewish refuseniks. They had a big impact on the way I, I looked at that system. And then I came back later. There were, there were more other times, but the last time I lived in the Soviet Union, was I, I returned to Moscow State University. I was a Fulbright scholar, the, the academic year, 1990-91. What a time to be there. 
It was an amazing time to be there, Ray. And, and I wanted to be there then. I'd started to learn what was going on in a trip in 1988 when I met the first dissidents that, that had the audacity to think that there should be multi-party elections and denunciation of the cult of Leninism. And I remember I met these folks. They, they were tied to the African Institute. I was writing about Africa at the time, my dissertation at Oxford, and they just seemed completely crazy to me. And they were kind of crazy. You got to be kind of crazy to take on the Soviet Union. They kind of reminded me of some of the socialist characters I would interact with up in Berkeley around the same time. My then girlfriend, now wife, was going to school there. And, you know, they're kind of kooky, but they had, were really committed. And I started to watch them and, and was in touch with them. And by 1990, they were leading a mass movement called Democratic Russia. It doesn't get as much attention in the West as solidarity, but it was as big. And they were leading these mass demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of people on the main square there. And I would go every week. You know, I was just observing in the margins, kind of uh, helping with a few things in terms of with contacts with the West. But those were exciting, you know, some of the most exciting days of my life because history was on their side. And the, the Enchant regime tried to push back in August 1991 and failed. And my friends became the leaders of Russia. And it felt back then, you know, I then moved to Russia in 1992 to set up an American NGO to help support democratic transitions. And it felt like the Cold War had ended and the Russians had ended the Cold War, by the way, not Ronald Reagan's Star Wars. That's a complete myth. They were the ones with their colleagues from Ukraine and Georgia and Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, et cetera, right? There was a mass movement that, that overthrew Soviet imperialism and Russians were at the forefront of that. And that felt like, you know, they were finally going to join the West and, and be a kind of normal, boring, democratic European country. Well, let, let's take a look at that time, because when you listen to Vladimir Putin, that's the time he speaks of with particular bitterness. Yes. And it sounds like his um, theory of the case, let's say, started to form then. Yes. About how to restore Russian glory, bring it back from uh, the brink of what he saw as a kind of a decadence and unraveling. Yes. Could things have gone a different way? When you talked to the people from the various new parties, when you talked to the Yegor Gaidars of the world, they saw a very different Russian future than the one that has us talking today. What happened? Yeah, it's a great, hard, big question. I I had to hope, write a whole book to answer it, Ray, because I've been, after <laughs> yeah. I left the government, I, I mean, literally your question is the question I wanted to answer in that book. And what happened in Russia and what happened with what I was doing during that period, right? Because uh, we know how it ended or, or where it's at now. It hasn't ended, but this tragic moment we're in now, there's a dictatorship in Russia and it's led by one man. And this is more dangerous than the Cold War confrontation, at least the last couple of decades, the end of the Cold War, in my view. So what happened? So a couple of things I would say. One, the folks that took over, you mentioned Yegor Gaidar. He was the acting prime minister during that period. I, I used to know him well. He has passed away. But they faced not just a transition from dictatorship to democracy, but they faced what I call the triple transition. Dictatorship to democracy, command economy to capitalism, and empire to nation state. 
and they had to do it all at the same time. So no matter who would have been in power, that was a tremendous, tremendous challenge for the leaders that took over after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Second, remember a a major advantage that their friends in Poland and Estonia had that they didn't is that in Poland and Estonia, you had the fusion of the anti-imperial nationalists and liberals. And and I, I say the word liberals in the European sense, right? They were together. They were united because they were colonies. They were colonized by the metropole of Moscow. In Moscow, the nationalists were not the partners of the liberals, right? They were the ones, including Mr. Putin, I'm going to get to him in a minute, who lamented the collapse of the Soviet empire as all, you know, oftentimes that's the case. That's, that was the case with the British and the French and the Portuguese. And that was the case with the Soviet empire. They lamented the collapse of their empire, but it still was not preordained because of that. I I think a couple of things. One, I, I do think there were certain economic policy decisions that were made that I think in retrospect were mistakes. I think the way they went about privatization, for instance, where on the one hand, they wanted to do mass privatization. They gave everybody a voucher, hoping that they, everybody would be an owner in the stock market, but nobody understood that. So they gave away these vouchers and it led to a lot of concentration of wealth. Second, the best things to own were done by insider privatization. Uh, We now refer to those owners as the oligarchs, right? So they made some economic policy mistakes. Second, I think Boris Yeltsin, the president at the time, made a a giant mistake. And I wouldn't have said this, Ray, at the time. I want to be self-critical of my own analysis. But when he tried to dissolve the parliament through an executive decree and later had to use force to do that, that created a path dependency to a super presidency that then was handed over to Vladimir Putin. I think that was a big mistake. I think the, the war in Chechnya was a mistake. So there were policy mistakes on their side. We also, though, I think the biggest American foreign policy mistake was made at this period. Not NATO, not all these other things, I think were way marginal compared to the biggest one. We didn't understand what a big momentous moment this was. We thought we'd won. Cold War was over. End of history. As my colleague, Frank Fukuyama, I'm looking at his books in my office right here. But there was a, a, a zeitgeist at the time that democracy had triumphed and, and everybody was just going to join the democratic world. The Chinese were going to do it a little bit slower, but it wasn't going to require any work. And I think we were dead wrong about that. We should have done after the end of the Cold War what we did after World War II, which is our enemies then, Japan, Germany, Italy, we didn't just say, you know, go work it out on your own, on your privatization and stuff, and we hope it all works. No, we invested heavily in trying to stabilize their economies, build institutions, and and even in security arrangements, right? But because we thought we'd won, we didn't do it. And the other reason, it's important, imagine if the Soviet Union uh, collapsed today. Just for a minute, you know, this, these are called counterfactuals. That's what we do in political science. So just for a minute, imagine through some miracle that Alexei Navalny, becomes president in Russia today. Guess what? We would have a very different strategy vis-a-vis him because we would want to pull him into the Western world because of our worries about China, right? And that's why we did it with Germany and Japan and Italy. It wasn't out of some, oh, we're going to be nice people. It was, no, we were worried about the Soviet Union. And that's why we helped them succeed 
the tragedy of Russia was when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no rising power in the East that animated us. And so we did very little. And I think that was a big mistake. One last thing, though. It's very important, very important for listeners to understand. Even with everything I said, everything I said, Putin was an accidental president. That there were not forces pushing for him to become president in 2000. He was handpicked by Boris Yeltsin. And, and by the way, his ideas back then, I met, I met Putin back in 1991, by the way, just so you know, on a democratic training program that he was uh, responsible for at, in the city council of St. Petersburg. His ideas have evolved, and we could talk about that if you're interested. But it's very important for people to understand that in 1998, everybody knew that the heir apparent to Boris Yeltsin was a guy named Boris Nemtsov. He was this fantastically popular governor, twice elected, extremely charismatic guy. I, he was a good friend of mine. Yeltsin brought him back into the government to groom him. And then there was a financial collapse in 1998, August 1998. It started in East Asia, but it, it, it bled into Russia. And that wiped out the government. And then they had to scramble for a new candidate that they could get through to be prime minister because it was still a democracy back then, remember? And that's how they landed on Putin. And that choice, you know, the night I remember it well when Boris Yeltsin announced January 1st, 2000, the first day of the millennium, that he was stepping down and he was appointing Putin as acting president. I think that will go down as one of the most fateful decisions of this century, because I have no doubt knowing Boris Nemtsov, as I did before he was assassinated in 2015, that had he been chosen by Yeltsin and then ratified by the Russian people to become president in 2000, the course of, of Russian history would have been very different. And there would have no way that Boris Nemtsov would have invaded the sovereign and democratic country of Ukraine. But as we know, it's Putin and he changes chairs with Medvedev, then gets the job back, then has the constitution changed so he can do it for a long time to come. Let's fast forward to today. You were one of the few Russia observers who, when the Biden administration was saying, this is it, he's getting ready to invade and people were poo-pooing it, you thought it could happen. Why? Well, because I followed Putin for a long time. Like I said, I met him in 91, started writing about him. My first piece I wrote about him, I can tell you exactly when. It was March 2000, 22 years ago, in the Washington Post. I was trying to hit a wake-up call that this guy has autocratic tendencies. It was a piece called Indifferent to Democracy. By the way, I got a call the minute it was published from a very senior person working for Secretary Albright at the time saying, Mike, you're being over dramatic. You're going too far. And Ray, I've been dealing with that for the last two decades, including interactions with the current president of the United States just recently. And I would say two things over the course of my writings and following him. One, we have underestimated his fear of freedom, both domestically and abroad. Two, we have underestimated his paranoia. You know, there's in my world, all these people talk about, is he rational or not? And, and I, I find that not a very interesting debate. But when you look at what he says, and, you know, I read what he says, I listen to what he says, I, I can understand what he says. It's very clear he's a very paranoid man about the West. And three, he has a higher level for risk-taking than I think people have understood for a long time. So it was risky 
to invade Ukraine the first time and annex a territory. We've never had a leader do that. During the Cold War, he did it. It was risky to send his air force in to prop up Assad in Syria. It was very risky to intervene in our elections in 2016. So risky, right? My friends who worked for Obama at the time couldn't even believe the intelligence when they saw it. They could not, they literally thought it was wrong because it just seemed so crazy what he's doing. Pretty risky to go kill somebody in Salisbury, right? One of his former intelligence officers, Sergei Skripal, send a hit squad in there in a NATO country. And I could go on. The point is he's taken a lot of risks. And then the other thing I would say about him, why I was nervous, is because he's been on a run. Let's face it. This is fifth war. The first four, Chechnya, 1999, Georgia, 2008, Ukraine, 2014, Syria, 2015. He won. He used force and he got what he wanted from his perspective. And I think that emboldens him to take even riskier actions. I, I think he's overreached here. I, I want to be clear. Those earlier wars were nothing like the one that he's launched today. Uh, but it's a pattern you see with other dictators, by the way, Ray. When they're in power for 20 years, they lose sense of reality. They begin to believe their own propaganda. They don't listen to their advisors and they overreach. It's actually what Brezhnev did, by the way. When he went into Afghanistan, he had a run, a bunch of Marxist-Leninist regimes, Southeast Asia, Southern Africa, Nicaragua. And then he thought history was on his side and he went into Afghanistan. And that turned out to be a, an event that eventually helped to unravel the Soviet Union. That's what I was fearful that Putin, that he was going to overreach. And tragically, here we are. You're listening to World Affairs. I'm Ray Suarez. I was listening recently to an interview you were doing on the BBC World Service. And just now I've been listening to you talk about what Russia's been up to in the wider world over the last generation. And you see a clear contrast between the values of Russia and the people who run it and his opponents in these various places around the world. Yet, the conventions, the folkways of journalism, ask people like me to cover them as if they're the same thing. Yeah. And the anchor had interviewed Vitaly Milanov of United Russia just yes. before you came on. Oh, you and heard that one, eh? Okay. <laughs> he, he, he was talking in a, you know, he's not a delusional man, but he was giving you the Baghdad Bob routine. He was saying yep. completely fanciful not true things. And then James Menendez pivots, introduces you, and begins to interview you just like the way he was interviewing Vitaly Milanov. And I think it's fair to say you were a little peeved. Yes. <laughs> because you weren't getting a chance to say, well, wait a minute, this guy was just lying to you. Right. Is is it a, a weakness of the system almost that Journalism asks us to do things in these ways, that these are just two different opinions about the world. It's a great question, Ray, and I, I don't have a black and white answer. So what bothers me sometimes, and most certainly that interview, was if you're just, you don't follow these issues closely. Remember, the BBC has listeners all over the world, and you're just hearing, oh, there's the Russian point of view and the American point of view, and surprise, surprise, they disagree. That's the way it was set up. But it's not that. I know that guy. I know him well. I know lots of people like him. He's not a professor. He's not an analyst. He's a Putin propagandist. On the day that, that 
you know, to me, this February 24th, 2022 has a lot of parallels to September 1st, 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland. So imagine putting on a Stanford professor and a Nazi propagandist on the day that Hitler rolled in to say, well, here's the Nazi point of view, and now here's the American point of view. I just think journalists have to, to think about how that sounds to people that are not as sophisticated as them. Because, you know, later James said, or, or what, the producer said, well, of course, that was nonsense. Well, yeah, to a BBC producer, that's nonsense. But that's not nonsense in lots of parts of the world where the BBC broadcasts. I, and I can tell you, Ray, I see it on, you know, I have a pretty big Twitter following. At McFall, though, people that want to join me there, I, I have people from all over the world. I can tell you that propaganda works. It works in our own country, by the way, when they hear that and they say, well, especially, by the way, if you have, with good justification, some priors to be skeptical of Americans, given some of the things that we've done in the world, right? So if you were against the war in Iraq and you think that that was a, a, a giant mistake, as I personally do, by the way, and you're living in a third country, and then you hear him, then you hear me, you immediately start playing the whataboutism game. And I just think that it creates a false equivalency between a propagandist and a professor. And I think, you know, journalists and, and Facebook and Twitter and, and YouTube, I've, I'm in conversations with all those companies right now about exactly your question. What is the ethical thing to do to support free speech, to listen to alternative views, but to not be used as part of a propaganda effort, which is supporting a heinous, horrible, senseless war. Let's be clear about that. Mr. Malonov was on the BBC to support that war. That was his assignment uh, on that, that program that day. Has Vladimir Putin, perhaps unwittingly, created an event and created a moment in international relations that he's going to regret. He might have been trying to exploit splits and tears in various alliances in NATO, in the EU, but now you've got Finns talking about joining NATO, uh, Sweden debating dropping its neutrality, the European Parliament debating Ukrainian accession to the EU on a lightning docket, um, the Italians and the Germans dropping their objections to uh, shutting off SWIFT to the Russians, which is something that may hurt their national economies, we have to see, but may hurt them terribly in the near term. Was this a catalytic moment that actually achieves the exact opposite of what Putin was trying to do? And Ray, let me add to your list, Democrats and Republicans standing up at a State of the Union and applauding. I haven't seen that for a long time either. So yes, I think he's definitely miscalculated. In many ways, he miscalculated how the Ukrainians would fight. He miscalculated how the West would react. He's miscalculated how his own people have reacted. I think it will be the, the blunder that will erase his entire legacy and it, uh, in three different buckets. So first, Ukraine. Putin will never succeed in subjugating the Ukrainian people to autocratic rule you know, from abroad, kind of like what Stalin did in Eastern Europe in the 1940s. That'll never happen. It'll never happen. Some will fight with guns and guerrilla warfare tactics. Others will use nonviolent civic resistance tactics. But there's no way he does not have the power to subjugate that giant country of 44 million people. They will eventually win. 
Number two, he has united the West. Uh, it's been a, and really a rebirth of Europe. I think focusing on Europe in particular, you know, there was a lot of disarray in Europe and Putin had some friends in Europe, by the way, Victor Urban, Salvini in Italy, Le Pen, and, and in our country, Mr. Trump, there was a kind of illiberal, I, international is what I call it, where he had cultivated these relationships. He's now blown that all apart because of this intervention. And, you know, talking to Europeans, I think that will have lasting effect in terms of their solidarity. And I also believe this will be the beginning of the end of Putin and Putinism inside Russia. Now, I'm not going to predict when that might happen. And I would just remind you, political scientists are bad about these predictions. And uh, I worked five years in the government. I can tell you the CIA is really bad at it too. But I have never seen such a consensus reaction about what a cataclysmic mis mistake this is. From the super rich who I know to common friends, you know, just the friends I've had for 30 years in Russia, they just feel like their leader made a huge mistake. They now have, are, have to worry, you know, their comfortable lives, especially rich people, but not just rich people, you know, people that vacation in Turkey and Egypt, all of that, the middle class, all of that has been disrupted in a really profound way. I think there's very few people that actually support this war. One does, of course, Putin. I don't think there's many even in his inner circle that think this was wise. And in society, I just, I don't think there is. And I, I think this will be the beginning of the unraveling of that system. That may, it may take years. It may not fully unravel until after Putin no longer rules Russia. Remember Brezhnev held on for a while after he invaded and it, it took Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev to come into power. But I do think it's kind of a reckoning uh, for the kind of system that he's built. And I see it unraveling in terms of its legitimacy, not in terms of its repression in, in remarkable ways already. One of the most fascinating variables to consider as you look at Eurasia and see the new friendships and new alignments, China. It's said that right up until the last minute, Chinese diplomats were reassuring both the Xi government and other countries that Putin wasn't going to pull the trigger. Right. And at the same time, the Chinese were telling him not to do it. Where does this all leave China? I think for Xi, he, I actually think he has an incredible opportunity right now, and I don't see signs that he's taking it, which is to say this. So remember, Xi Jinping and Putin have been close forever. They met 40 times, two autocracies that feel threatened by democracies. Uh, and by the way, all autocracies all the time are threatened by democracies. It's not about policy. It's just an alternative way for legitimacy that they vote for their leaders over there and I got a different way of doing it. Just structurally, they're always threatened. That's, that's true throughout history. And, you know, that had been coming closer and closer and closer. In my own writings about these things, I've always said Putin is way more revisionist vis-a-vis -vis the international system than Xi Jinping is, in part because he's more, he's taken more radical steps, right? Redrawing borders, annexation, those are radical steps that Xi Jinping has not done yet. And you got to remember China and the Chinese economy benefited from what we call the liberal international order, right? I would say they probably benefited more than any other country. So I think there's been a miscasting in the American debate about China that they want to break that down and take it over. That's not my reading of China. They want to reform it. 
they want more power in it, but they're not revolutionary revisionists, but they saddle up with this, you know, with this kind of guy who's a little more erratic than they are. And I think this would be, if you could think strategically, this would be a major moment where she could just break loose of him and say, we want to be a respectable member of the UN Security Council and stability and rule of law in the system. You know, we'd have to caveat that with no meddling in our internal affairs, right? Protect our autocracy. And he could even be a mediator, right? Because Xi Jinping is the only leader in the world that Vladimir Putin respects. There's not a single other leader in the world that he respects. And I think that could actually radically adjust even our bilateral relationship with China. I just haven't seen any evidence uh, that he wants to do that. So far, they're just, it's colleague of mine calls it, have their cake and eat it too policy, right? So uh, stand with the international system and principle, but also say some nice things about Putin and not get involved. And I think he's missing a big opportunity here. Michael McFall was U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. He now teaches at Stanford University, where he heads the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. He's the author of many books, including the bestseller From Cold War to Hot Peace, An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. Ambassador McFall, thanks for joining us on World Affairs. Always good to talk to you. Always great to talk to you, Ray. Really enjoyed it. See you again sometime. You've been listening to World Affairs, produced in partnership with KQED, with funding from TPG, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and from listeners like you. Today's episode was produced by Andrew Stelzer, Polly Stryker, Matteo Schimpf, and Elise Minukian. It was edited by our executive producer, Joanne Jennings. Our technical supervisor is Jim Bennett. Philip Yun is CEO of World Affairs. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Simplecast, and SoundCloud to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.